Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Oh, so glad to have you tuning in, and we really do hope to see you here soon. Um, And here we go. Uh, I I said last... uh, Actually, let me start with this. We end our three-week fast today. Are you glad? How many of you broke fast already? How many of you are waiting till after church? Uh, how many of you decided to make it a year-long fast? That's uh, between you and God. And God bless you. Uh, and I prepared you last week for what I said was going to be kind of a difficult message. And I hope I didn't scare you. Of course, I, uh, I've had several people ask me, so what's this going to be about? And I'm not really keeping it a secret. I've answered people who've asked, and uh, I just, I didn't mean for this to be some big mysterious thing. I didn't mean for it to scare anybody away. Somebody asked me specifically, do I want to be there? I don't want to get my toes stepped on, or, or somebody said, and somebody else said, are you going to step on our toes? Because it depends on what, that, that'll make a difference what shoes I wear, that sort of thing. <laughs> it's nothing really like that. It's not some earth-shattering revelation. It's just a little difficult for me to preach it, all right? Uh, and what I started to say, though, was what does it have to do with ending our fast? Bear with me for a couple more paragraphs. I say, every year at least once, I say about the fast during this time, actually there's at least two things that I say. And one is that, again, a fast is not intended to get God's eyes on us. It's intended to get our eyes on God. We don't fast for God's attention. We fast for our attention, right? And the other other one is a line I stole from Mike Goolsbee years ago, which is that when we fast, we lay aside something natural in pursuit of something supernatural. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how Jesus said his food was to do the will of the Father. And this is super important, so let me try to sum that up by way of review. I used an illustration that I frankly, probably dragged out a little bit too long about how we can train our bodies to shift over to a different fuel source, specifically how we can get our bodies to burn energy in the form of stored fat rather than readily available glycogen in the muscle cells, Uh, and then talked about that in in a spiritual sense, about how we get fed or refueled in times of prayer, in times of study, church, fellowship, all these things, so that we can go out and do the work of God, but that Jesus himself said that it is doing the work of God that is actually, it's not a drain on our resources or our energy and our strength, but actually food and strength itself. And even more astonishing then, I think, when you think about it in these terms, that his response to the devil during the temptation episode, when, when uh, you know, he's hungry, 40-day fast, total fast, and the devil comes to him and says, hey, if you're hungry... Uh, If you are who you say you are, just command some of these rocks to be made bread and eat them. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. He said that in response, in this case, to physical hunger. Can it be that doing the work of God can physically strengthen and sustain us? I believe it can be. It doesn't mean that food is a crutch. God created food for us and bodies that operate on food. But The basis of my message today is this, that we have a lot of desires that are disguised as needs. And a fast teaches us that the things we think we need, we really don't. Now, obviously, there's an immediate application uh, for me. 
mean, I know it is for you too, but I'm speaking to me. I hope you understand that. In terms of lifestyle choices, I know. I tell you, I make a, a lot of uh, lighthearted, self-deprecating comments about my weight and things like that. But honestly, my eating habits over the last year or two have just been abominable. I'm not talking about always eating too much. Just all the wrong stuff, you know? I like a good quality pizza, I really do. I love a Papadell's or a Chicago deep dish, but if Totino's are on sale, 10 for a dollar, 11th one free, my freezer's getting stuffed with those things because they're quick, they're easy, and man, all you gotta do is add about 500 more calories in the, in the form of more cheese and, and toppings, and they're delicious. And it's so easy to throw a handful of something in the air fryer. Uh, and most of these things, most of these things are not really good for me. But what I'm reminded of in the days of fasting is that I absolutely can find time to prepare healthy things. And some of them are even delicious healthy things. I don't need to eat certain amounts, uh, certain junk, which is why I choose to, to forego this certain junk for three weeks so that I can remind myself I don't have to have it. But you see... After the fast is over, I need to remember that I don't need the construct of a designated three-week fast to make those choices. My desire for a quick, delicious meal is not the same thing as my need for proper nutrition. All right? Now, what am I saying in terms of where we're going today? Uh, or from here forward, sticking on the fast for a second, obviously I can live without Totino's party pizzas. I can live without Papadell's or Giordano's. I can live without cheese. I can live without donuts. There is nothing sinful about eating those things. You hear me? But I can live without them. I might get uncomfortable in moments of craving, but I can live without them. Same thing with anything you did without for three weeks. If you can live without it for three weeks, you can probably live without it. Unless you did a total fast. And even then, God could miraculously sustain you. But you better hear from God. One of the most basic things we learn in a fast is which appetites have the strongest influence and pull on us. There is nothing sinful about craving a pizza or anything else, but there is something wrong if I always move to satisfy every craving. That's called being ruled by my appetite. And of course, there are sinful appetites. None of our appetites should master us. All right? We, we could go on and on about that. we got to weigh the momentary pleasure of a candy bar or a Coke or a cigarette against the long-term deleterious effect on our health. But you know all that. You already know that. Fasting can be a useful experience in that regard because it reveals certain things to us. But of course, that's not what fasting is all about, spiritually speaking. It's about drawing closer to Jesus it's about drawing closer to the ideal that we sing about, have sung about over the years in countless praise and worship songs, which is this, Jesus is all I need. It's easy to sing, and we know it's a deep spiritual truth. How true is it? In Psalm, in Psalm 16, beginning in verse 5, we read this, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Let me read this from the Good News translation. You, Lord, are all I have, and you give me all I need. My future is in your hands. How wonderful are your gifts to me. How good they are. Corey Tenboom said, 
You never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Now we say and we believe that God truly is all we need, but many of us feel a little bit like Francis Thompson uh, wrote in his poem, the famous poem, The Hound of Heaven. And he's describing through this poem how he ran from God. And it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. It's a long poem. And I'm going to recite the whole thing to you now. No, I'm not. But there is this great line early in the poem where he writes, For though I knew his love who followed, yet I was sore adread, lest having him I must have naught beside. Meaning, I'm afraid he knew deep down that God loved him, but he was afraid if he yielded to God's love, if he, could, if he committed his life to God, that God was going to take everything else away from him. And sometimes we're afraid of that. If I really act like God is all I need, then maybe he'll call me on it and take away everything else. And we have to understand if it ever comes to that, you know what we'll discover? That he really is all we need. But relax, because the Bible actually says much more about God giving us all we need. He doesn't desire to withhold things from us. We just need to keep our priorities straight. He is all we need because he created us, but he created us with certain needs that he promises to supply abundantly. But all these needs are less necessary than God himself. Blaise Pascal, uh, famous for a number of things, including his famous wager, uh, but he said this, that, uh, and you've, you've all heard this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And the sad history of mankind is this saga of trying to fill that void with anything but God. And because everything but God eventually fails to satisfy, what happens? Well, we'll pursue something else. I thought I would be satisfied if I had this much. It doesn't satisfy, so I'm going to get more. And this, on a national level, is actually what leads to wars. James wasn't kidding when he wrote about that. It starts with simple abuse of appetites, then to addictions, and then all the way up to war. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to talk about somebody who tried to satisfy the longing of the soul with everything but God, read Ecclesiastes, the story of Solomon who really had a go at it because he had practically unlimited resources. Fellow counselor at Canaan Land told me years ago, about a season he went through when he was hungry, physically hungry all the time. This was a very talented and dedicated individual. He's actually the guy, uh, he was my Rama connection that, that actually wound up, that's how I wound up there because I happened to know this guy. But he was a very physically active guy and constantly running around fixing things, building things for the ministry. And uh, he said there was a time when it's just like every time he turned around he was looking for food. He's He's scrounging for snacks, and uh, he, when it was time to eat, man, he'd pile it on. He'd ask for seconds, ask for thirds. He never really got fat. He wasn't just sitting around eating. He was just constantly hungry, and then he realized, uh, just practically in a second, he realized that he had gotten so busy with other stuff that he had completely neglected his time with the Lord. 
He wasn't having to teach hardly any classes because he was always busy with other stuff. So even the prep time for class he was missing. But he was starving himself spiritually and it manifested itself as a spiritual hunger. And he kept wondering, I'm eating all this and I'm never getting full because that's not what you were craving. What you were craving was the presence of God, the word of God, prayer, Christian fellowship. It's interesting how these things can manifest themselves. And right now we are in a place We are in a time in our history where we are facing a lot of uncertainty. It doesn't need to be repeated anymore. Uh, The perfect storm of COVID, the government's response to COVID, the, the damage to our economy that's been done by the government's response to COVID, the summer of riots, and some of which continue, strained race relations, and An election which has left a bitter taste in the mouths of many. There are huge problems that need to be addressed, and I know that many are worried that the new administration has all the wrong answers. We're distressed not only about the individuals in power, but at the platform that they ran on, the direction they seem intent on taking this country. I am too. Let me interrupt myself, and this is likely to happen more than once. Uh, even in a congregation this size, in a town this size, even though I have a pretty good handle on what is the majority political opinion in here, there is nothing monolithic about this congregation. Every one of you needs to walk in love with every other one of you. Not just love, but respect. Sometimes I scratch my head and think, how can a Christian support such and such a candidate? And there might be one or two particular issues that really make me think that, but the fact is, there really are more than one or two issues. And... I have to take a step back and realize sometimes they can look at me and say, how can a Christian support your candidate? We're only, we are limited in the things that we understand and see. doesn't mean you can't be confident and bold in your convictions, but don't just assume that somebody who doesn't share your particular affinity for a particular individual, that they don't share your love for life, your love for the country, Okay? Can we love one another and respect one another? And if you guys talk about it, listen to one another. I hope to lead us today to a point where these aren't nearly as contentious issues as we, as we think they are. But, you know, it, 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 you say, well, a vote for a certain party is a vote for death. A vote for another party is a vote for life. Do the research. Since Roe v. Wade, we've had a lot of opportunities with cons- overwhelmingly conservative courts, Congress, Senate, President, nothing's been done to change Roe v. Wade. What are we waiting on? I know there are other ways to address the life issue. But I'm starting to think, all right, is this just something that certain candidates say? Do they intend to do anything about this? I think it's a big issue. I think it's the biggest issue. It's not the only issue, but I think it's the biggest issue. Anyway. Wasn't going to go that far with that. Walk in love. Let's just say that. There are things that are being pushed, things that are being celebrated and likely to be enforced that are clearly anti-God, immoral, and ultimately, I believe, detrimental to the health of the nation 
And since this seems clear, it also seems clear that God would never ordain such things and such administration, which makes it really easy to get behind certain proclamations that have been made. And here is where I wade into dangerous territory. I apologize in advance for anybody uh, that, that is offended by this. It's not my intention. Uh, please hear me all the way through. And if this weren't something that were widely, uh, this isn't just one or two people I'm talking to. This is, this is pretty broad, uh, which is why I'm addressing the whole congregation about it. Uh, I know that many of you have been encouraged by and challenged by the words of certain individuals who operate in the prophetic ministry, so let me start by saying some, making something absolutely clear. I am not aligning myself against anybody. I'm not aligning myself against these men and women who I'm not going to name. Couldn't name them all anyway. I am not casting aspersions on their ministries, not casting aspersions on their callings, certainly not on their salvation. And I have not seen and heard nearly everything. I get a ton of stuff, mostly videos, sent to me every day, and I cannot possibly watch it all, so I have to answer more generally. So here we go again with the broad brush, but I feel I must give you an answer, and this answer is going to sound pretty stern. If you decide you disagree with me, can you continue to love me and pray for me? Because... Um, Here's the problem, as I see it, and the reason my, I get a little stern about this, and I'm speaking generally. The position presented by a certain group of individuals is that it's clear that the only way for America to continue to thrive and be blessed is if Trump were reelected. And since clearly God still has plans for America to thrive, Trump will win a second term. This is the prophecy going back you know, months ago. And some of them flat out said, thus saith the Lord. This is a word from God. Trump will be reelected. And then he didn't. He didn't win. Uh, and I know two guys. There were probably more, but I know two guys that I could name, and again won't, who came out, came right out and said, I missed it. Sorry. Didn't mean to mislead anybody. Thought I heard from God. So I prophesied what I thought I heard. It didn't happen. And at least one of those guys, maybe both, have been attacked by believers saying, how dare you walk it back? Others, and this is where it gets scary, uh, and it gets a little scary because whether this is a formal declaration or just a term that's, that's, that has evolved in recent weeks, it's a group that are referred to amongst themselves as God's true prophets. God's true prophets. And they've come back with a number of explanations. First, is when, first was this, early after the election. Don't panic. When the dust settles and the count is over, Trump wins. Didn't happen. Second, there is a massive information dump, a shocking revelation that Trump is going to drop that will cause the Electoral College not to certify the election. Didn't happen. Third, the shocking revelations are still coming before the inauguration. Biden will not be inaugurated. Didn't happen. So now it moves into this phase. 
Trump did win the election, in a landslide no less, so our prophecies were in fact correct. The Democrats just stole the election from the rightful winner. Also, the prophecies were correct, but the church at large didn't embrace them as prophecy, didn't, I don't know, aggressively enough involve themselves or celebrate or enthusiastically enough respond or faithfully enough respond. Therefore, it didn't happen, which boils down to this. My prophecy would have come true if you had believed it. I'm not trying to make light of that. And there's actually, there was a case that one of them made that kind of at least lent a little credibility to it. I'm not going to recount it here. I'll just, I'll just say it, it didn't pass muster with me theologically. Uh, but let me hedge my bet here just for a second before I move on. Because at least one of these guys has said this, don't worry about the inauguration date or any other date because the miracle is still going to happen. I'll hedge my bet by saying this, we'll see. All right? I, I, I'm not willing to say prophetically or otherwise that it is categorically impossible. How's that for playing it safe? And when I prophesy, I like, I like to be 100% accurate. So let me tell you this. Your future is before you, and your past is behind you, saith the Lord. All right? Now, here's why I think we are in a precarious position. Here's why. It's like, Scott, you really didn't have to talk about any of this stuff. I think I do, and here's why. A popular position among a certain group of believers is simply this, that since it was prophesied by God's true prophets, Trump did win the election. That makes it much easier to believe the claims of mass fraud and corruption. Was there fraud? Yeah, there is always fraud. Was there corruption? There always is. Was there mass systematic fraud on the scale that was claimed? I don't know. And no matter what you think, neither do you. You don't know. Now, if knowing the truth about that is important to you, then I urge you to at least read some intelligent articles written by conservatives, written by Christians who are making the case that the election was fair. You might not agree, but maybe you will at least stop thinking people are insane. Which makes it a little easier to walk in love. Because nobody loves crazy people. <laughs> King David was afraid of them. Anyway, here's the position. Since Trump really won, that means Biden is not the president. And that means I don't have to honor him as the president. I don't really have to pray for him. Not as I'm commanded to pray for those in authority. Do you see why it's a dangerous position? You see, for years, we listened to people refer to Donald Trump as the orange man, or much, much worse. And our response, especially from Christians, was, and this is a correct response, I might add, hey, you don't have to like the guy, but respect the office. This is the office of the President of the United States. And whether you like him or not, he's your president too. In fact, he's not your president, he's not my president, he is the president. But since we don't believe Biden is the president, 
Suddenly, these same people are saying, Sleepy Joe, Creepy Joe, and much, much worse. I kept waiting for the inauguration to be over so that one way or another, we as a church could get down to the business of praying for the president, whoever it was. But now some people have managed to find a position where they can avoid that scriptural mandate by simply refusing to recognize the election. Now let me make this clear. I'm your pastor. I am not your president. I am not your conscience. And I am not God. I do not, I have never embraced an authoritarian style of pastoring. So please follow the voice of God as you hear him. As you hear God. You follow your conscience as long as your conscience is cleansed by God. I'm not infallible. I'm absolutely capable of missing it. But don't let a man or a woman or a group of men and women who, at the end of the day, you don't know, dictate that for you either. I have done my best not to do that with anyone over the years, but I have seen it again and again and again. Uh, when I was at Rama, of course, uh, I was back there in the late 80s, early 90s, and Brother Hagen was still there, still alive, still teaching, still ministering, and there were people who told me they came to Rama to sit at the feet of the prophet. Brother Hagen absolutely ministered prophetically. And it was an honor to sit under his ministry. I, when I answered the call and when I wound up going to Ramah, I know that I can remember the moment. I know where I was sitting. I know who it was. Cooper Beatty. He was up there sharing some things during the Ramah Get Acquainted weekend. And that's when I heard God say, not audibly, just want to be clear, that's when I was made to know and I was made to know that it was God making me know it. Go to Ramah. He didn't say, come sit at the feet of the prophet. He didn't sit there and say, come be a disciple of uh, Brother Hagen. He said, go to Ramah. And man, my eyes were open to the wealth of great instruction. I still think we had the best cadre of instructors uh, during the time that I was there. But everybody probably thinks that. Uh, but I had Keith Moore and Patsy, okay? Well, they're both uh, full-time instructors. Anyway, point is this. When... Brother Hagen would, 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 would talk about some things. Sometimes he would drift into some really, I don't know. I couldn't even repeat it. I will say he was addressing some things one morning uh, to the whole student body that were very, very confusing. And you could just sort of feel people looking around like, uh, uh, uh. And I don't know if he was just kind of rambling. Maybe we were just not spiritual or spiritual enough or smart enough to follow it. Again, I don't mean to cast aspersions on him either. Everybody has a bad day. But as we're walking out, I hear a conversation behind me uh, where one uh, student is saying to another, wasn't that awesome what Brother Hagen said? And the other one said, I'll be real honest, I didn't understand any of it. And the first one said, well, I didn't either, but my spirit was blessed. Okay. But, and I get it. On one hand, I appreciate that we're going to honor this person. If it's coming from him, it must be good. But that can be dangerous too. had a conversation with somebody yesterday where we were talking about this. If people tell you it long enough and loud enough and consistently enough, 
you are the man of God, you hear from God, you have a voice, you, you, are, you are great, you are great, you are great, you are important, you are important, you are important. Sooner or later, you're going to believe it. And sometimes that will allow you to step into some areas where you are just a little too authoritative. There was a, a I won't say who it was, it, it shouldn't get me in too much trouble if I did, but this was a, a, a young comedian back in the 80s who uh, began to have a very successful movie career. Everything this guy acted in was box office gold. I mean, just everybody wanted him to star in their movies. And then he starred in a couple movies that turned out to be real stinkers. And then the stories came out. Well, why did this movie stink? Well, because suddenly he went from being an actor to dictating everything that happened on the set. You know, he'd, just, he'd be so particular about every little thing. Uh, so suddenly he thought he was the actor, actor and the director, oh, and the writer and the set decorator and everything else. Well, go to an interview with this guy, and he said, all of that's kind of true, but only because people treated me like I had to have an opinion about everything. It's their job to decorate the set, the script, but if they came up and said, how can we change this so you'll like it better, I felt like I had to change it. If they asked me something stupid like, do you like that lamp where it is in the set, I'd have to tell them, no, I'd like it better over there. They force him into a position where he has to act like he has all the authority that they're granting him. Same thing can happen in ministry or any other job. And so it's easy to get all that to say, and I say this with all honor, all respect, and I say it very carefully. I could tell you a specific thing or two that I disagreed with Brother Hagin on. It wasn't deep theology. Nothing like, nothing's going to make me turn my back on Rama or dismiss his legacy. I'm just telling you there's no such thing as an infallible minister. Hasn't been since Jesus. Paul himself, who had, I'm sure, the clearest revelation of God's word, was Humble enough to say on certain issues, I have no word from the Lord on this. I'll tell you what I think, but please remember, this is me, Paul. But I've had people get mad at me in the last year, not because I trampled on Scripture, but because what I said didn't line up with what a certain minister said who they held in high regard. I won't go any further with that. I'll just tell you I'm still mad. I've forgiven, but I'm still mad. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I got time to be mad. So again, these, these men and these women that we hold in high regard, and, and listen, let me, let me just throw one more example at you because I think I'm getting to where I'm almost done. And you kind of knew this was going to go a little long today anyway, right? Uh, I worked for a guy. Told you these stories before. I worked for Mac Gober, uh, who was a tremendous, tremendous man of God. Gifted. I could tell you story after story after story how he blessed me and how he just did some things that I know were supernatural. But what was interesting was when we, we went places, if you traveled with him or just visited a church where he's ministering, where people would say, it must be the greatest thing in the world to work for a guy like that. It was the worst thing in the world. It was great in terms of the things you got to do and experience, but again, in all love and all honesty, he was a horrible, horrible boss. I could, for, for, for every wonderful 
move of God I could see God doing through his ministry, I could tell you a story of borderline abuse. Perfetto, who, uh, who shared with us during the security seminar, said the same thing about working for, for other ministers. I probably shouldn't have even named Matt Gober because I, I, I owe the man a great debt for just the, the experience and all that. I'm just saying he was human. We can't put anybody up on a pedestal and say, I believe this because it came from this guy's mouth or this guy's ministry. Nobody gets a pass like that. And we don't throw them away. If they've got a great track record in ministry and then they say something that's wrong, say, well, thank God for their ministry and let's move on. Let's don't focus on the, the, something they miss. So, I've heard guest ministers in this church that I brought in say things that I have had to call them on. And sometimes I've had to get up the next week and correct some things. Not very often. And it's never anything that starts a fire that we can't put out. Bottom line, of course, is you better know the word. Meanwhile, and here is truly the important thing, and this is also the connection between the mess we're in and the fast we just completed. I don't need pizza to be happy. Did I mention that? Can you tell I've been thinking a lot about pizza? I don't need pizza to be happy. I don't need a lot of things I feel like I need to be happy and productive in the kingdom of God. I don't even need a particular guy in the office of the President of the United States to fulfill my God-given mandate to preach the gospel. Remember when Jeremiah was prophesying that Judah was going to be carried into captivity? Do you remember that there were other prophets prophesying the exact opposite? Now, of course, we have the Bible, and we have the benefit of all this hindsight. We know Jeremiah was telling the truth. But imagine, I can't do this yet, can I? I'm step down a little bit. Am I good? I can only go down one step, though. Imagine, now I'm going to walk around and trip down these chairs. I'm going to go down to the floor. Imagine if you're living in Judah and you're listening to these prophecies. You've got promises, scriptural promises from God that he's going to prosper you as a nation. He's going to bless you. He's going to be forever committed to you. And you've got a pretty good leg to stand on when you're going to prophesy to the people, I know it looks bad, but there's no way God will ever let his city fall to the enemy. Right? That would be awfully hard to argue with. I probably wouldn't have been on Jeremiah's side. It's too doom and gloom. It contradicts too much of what we see in the promises of God. His temple? No way. God's holy temple? God's not going to allow it. And Jeremiah's like, uh, look, yeah, he is. This, this is judgment. You're going to be carried out of here. Now listen, don't lose heart. Jeremiah's message, it was a sad message, but it had a message of hope. You're right, God promised to uh, be with you guys. He's not going to forsake you. He's committed to you. He's going to stay committed to you even in Babylon. He's going to prosper you in Babylon. And he's going to bring you back out of Babylon. But you're going and these things are going to happen. Also this. After the return from captivity, did you realize that Israel 
never did and never has returned to its former glory and power on earth. They've never come close to the ideal that was under the leadership of David and Solomon. But did Israel fulfill its mission? Why did God, why did God uh, call Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans? And why did God create a people out of this one man? What was his stated reason for doing that? To bring Jesus Christ into the world. Now, it doesn't mean God's done with Israel. They still have a blessing, I believe, a covenant blessing promise with God, and God's going to fulfill some things uh, through Israel on the earth. But their primary purpose for existence as a nation was to bring the Messiah into the earth, which they did. And they didn't have to be the biggest nation in the world to do it, the strongest nation in the world to do it. When it happened, they were completely under the thumb of Rome. And they still completed their mission, didn't they? The church historically has not done well when it's been in a position of power. nice when we're able to live in a nation and an environment that is friendly to our beliefs, but it is not necessary. And we are far too easily distracted. I'll give you this one, uh, more, one more example, and I'll move into my closing. Uh, there have been three so-called great awakenings, evangelical great awakenings, revival great awakenings in our history. And the second one, in the early 1800s, this is when Finney was preaching. And this second great awakening one of the things that grew out of it was the uh, temperance movement. There were different specific societies, but the temperance movement took as their mission to abolish, to eradicate alcohol production, distribution, and consumption in the whole country. Now, they had a reason for doing this. Uh, drunkenness and excessive alcohol consumption was a, a primary cause of many of society's ills. There was, a tr there was a terrible number of people dying of liver diseases. There, were, uh, there was uh, abuse uh, on a wide scale. There was crime, all sorts of stuff that was easy to trace to alcohol. So they made it their mission to wipe out alcohol. And you talk about, uh, talk about a long term. This is a movement that, uh, that remained in force with varying degrees of success for 100 years. 100 years. Up through, in fact, the Third Great Awakening, which was at the end of the, uh, of the 1800s. And that's when they kind of reached their stride, and they were so effective uh, that what resulted was the Volstead Act, of course, which, was, uh, which made prohibition the law of the land. You remember, there was a time when that was the law of the land. You couldn't produce alcohol, you couldn't drink alcohol, you couldn't sell alcohol. Now, different states had a little bit more leniency as far as what you could make or drink on your own. So this should have been their crowning achievement. Law of the land changed because of 100 years of dedicated efforts towards something that they felt strongly about for the right reasons. But what grew out of that? Organized crime was practically invented because of prohibition. Now, you need to know that there are some studies that show that crime rates overall did not increase during prohibition. But crime as a business, institutionalized crime, and massive corruption absolutely did. 
Organized crime as we know it today had its roots in prohibition. This was such a bad time, you couldn't afford, if you saw somebody flagrantly violating the law that had anything to do with the Volstead Act, you couldn't risk telling a cop in some cities because they were on the take. And you, you, you go try to, to turn somebody in, you're interfering with that very cop's livelihood. Who's going to get punished? You can get taken for a ride, aren't you? Trunk music. Anyway, whether it was a good thing for prohibition to be repealed is still argued. The only reason I bring it up is because during that Second Great Awakening, during the very event that launched the temperance movement, Finney was preaching in uh, Rochester, New York for a number of weeks where 100,000 people came to Christ. Some reports say that the population during his revival increased by two-thirds. You know what typically goes up when population goes up? Crime goes up. During this same time, crime decreased by two-thirds. Saloons closed for two reasons. Saloon keepers got saved, and they wanted to be at every meeting possible, and there was no business for the saloon. Nobody had to march. Nobody had to change any laws. Nobody had to picket. They focused on saving souls. And the prayer that went into these meetings, that, that, that is a whole separate uh, series of sermons and something we, but something we need to talk about. But Finney and a traveling companion, he usually had somebody that would go on ahead of him. If you read his uh, biography or his autobiography, he'll talk about this guy who would go ahead of him weeks ahead of him sometime, and just lock himself in a room and pray, pray, pray before Finney started preaching. But all this prayer went up. It was all about what were they praying for? That revival would happen, that people would be saved, that souls would be saved. They didn't go into a town. We are going to go into this town, and we're going to clean up the streets. We're going to close the saloons. We're going to shut down prostitution. That wasn't their goal. Their goal was to save souls. And they knew that when that happened, things would just change. You can't change the character of a country, and you can't change individuals in a country from the top down. You've heard the saying a hundred times, you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate character. Doesn't mean there's not a place for good laws. There is. But ultimately, when we, at a grassroots level, start really concerning ourselves with the work that God has given us, that will eventually bubble to the top. Certain people will be voted out. Certain people will be voted in and laws will change. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there will always be, uh, in our midst as a nation, there will be those who are going to be opposed to these things. And the bad news is, in the last days, this is going to increase. We are not promised to always be living the gospel and preaching the gospel from a position of power but we can still be effective even if we are marginalized. So here's what we want. When we focus on the, on the gospel, and many people respond to the gospel, society has changed for the better, including, in many cases, godly laws being passed. If we put the cart before the horse and try to ram even good causes and even good laws down the throat of a godless society, we'll end up frustrated. The big problem, as I see it, uh, 
as we look at the issues of law and order, these are issues now we're dealing with, right, with the riots and everything else. Issues of law and order, uh, the economy, the election, is here's what we want. We want to restore law and order. We want to fix the economy. And we want to get the right guy in office so that we can then get on with the business of the kingdom. But that's backwards. I know I've only touched on a lot of these things. I haven't said anything about the COVID, COVID vaccine. And I hope I haven't sown confusion. If you are still deeply concerned about, for instance, the election results, the only thing I can tell you to do is pray for truth and transparency. And it should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. We absolutely should be involved in the process. Run for office. Vote at the local level. At every level. Be informed. But if you're going to be truly informed, you cannot get your news from one source. No matter what that source is. That, that result will always lead to divisiveness. Doesn't mean you have to look at every source. Nobody can. But there are, there are some sources a multiplicity of sources that are more or less trustworthy. Now, in what I hope will be the least controversial thing I do all day, and this isn't, I'm not done here, but I'm going to do this, and, and then I'm almost done. But right now, I want to pray, I want to pray for President Biden. A, uh, what's the phrase in uh, is it Proverbs or Psalms where it says let, uh, let his days be few and let another take his office. That used to be a button people would wear when the wrong president in their mind. That's not the prayer we're going to pray today. Heavenly Father Thank you for this great nation. I look back over our history and certainly over my lifetime and I can see that we are, we are absolutely unique in the history of nations. I've been blessed personally to have grown up and lived in the greatest, richest, freest, and most powerful nation in the history of mankind. And I believe, Lord, that you have blessed us. I believe you have privileged us as a nation to have been partnered with you in many ways in spreading the gospel around the world. And I do believe you still have plans for the United States of America, but I also believe that the democratic process is ultimately a gift from you. And I thank you that we live in a country where we have a voice. I guess my first prayer, Lord God, is to help us live in harmony with others who have voices when their voices disagree with us, with ours. But Lord, you've commanded us to pray for those in authority, to pray for kings and all those in authority for the sake of our peace. We know that we don't have to agree with anybody's platform. And in fact, Lord, we'll continue to pray that you frustrate certain plans. But right now, Lord, I pray that you preserve and protect our president, Joe Biden. I pray, Lord, that you surround him with people 
who are godly and wise and who can speak not just boldly but persuasively to him as he makes important decisions, as decisions for the future of this country. I do not pray for Joe Biden's failure. I pray for this country's success. I have no desire to see this country fail or fall or, or, or to be diminished in any way just to prove a certain political position correct. But Lord, I also don't want to see this country prosper if it prospers by perpetuating evil. There are a lot of things to sort out, and you, you, Lord God, you and you alone are the only one who sees the end from the beginning. I believe, Lord God, and I believe your word bears it out that there's nobody who's beyond redemption. There's nobody beyond change, nobody beyond rescue, nobody beyond salvation. I, if there are those in, uh, at any level of government... I know it can be so difficult to humble yourself to the point where you realize you need a Savior. But Lord, every one of us in this room has had to come to that point at, some, at one point or another. And I don't know what's in Joe Biden's heart. I don't know what is in Kamala Harris's heart. I just know that right now, President Biden, Vice President Harris, need our prayers. And that according to your word, our prayers make a difference for them and for us and for this nation. Again, Lord, preserve his life, protect him, bless him with people who can speak into his life. None of, none of us in here would ever presume to tell you how to do your job, Lord God, but bless the United States of America even under, even during this administration. Help us, Lord, to see things in the days and weeks to come so that we can pray more specifically, so we can pray passionately for things, passionately against things, but in all of it, in all of it, Lord, help us to be found praying for and honoring President Biden. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, stand up with me. Praise and worship team, you can come up here. Because I'm going to throw one more, slip in one more angle on this. When we've been, uh, we were talking about this at men's prayer yesterday, that I believe one of the things that has happened as a result of these great big issues is that we've been distracted from doing the things we're called to do. And I'm not just talking in vague terms about, well, go into all the world and preach the gospel. I mean, that's not vague, that's pretty specific. But I mean, we've got a church body here with specific needs. And let me ask you something. This is tough. And I thank God. I don't think God puts these choices in front of us. But I think when I think of Jenny, still waiting on the manifestation of her healing, when I think of Pastor Larry, my dad, waiting on the manifestation of his healing, and you came to me today and said, you get to pick one. Either your guy can be president or your dad can get up out of that bed and walk. Either your guy can be president or Jenny gets up out of that wheelchair. Or if you're the one waiting on a miracle, be honest, what do you choose? I'll be, I'll be honest with you, no question in my mind, I choose the miracle. Does that sound selfish? Kind of does, doesn't it? When Jesus came, all the Jews expected 
If he really is the Messiah, he's going to change the government. He's going to fix everything from the top down. What did he do? He healed individuals. He met individual needs. And those individuals, over the course of decades and eventually centuries, changed society, changed worldwide culture from the ground up. I'm not saying we stop praying for the nation. We don't. I don't say we stop praying for the world. But let's remember to pray for one another. I love you guys. And I'm way more personally concerned with what, how I can bless you, how we as a local body can join together, how we can be unified. Not saying God can't unify this country, but we can certainly be unified, can't we? Can't we accomplish a lot here if we love one another and agree that what's important is us, we here at Living Word Fellowship, pursuing God wholeheartedly. Join a small group. Be open with one another. Be quick to share your prayer needs so that we can pray. And right now, here's this. Man, none of us are going to get out of here alive. I don't mean this building. <laughs> the pastor just threatened to kill us all. <laughs> he can't get us all. Run for all the exits. That's not what I'm saying. We're not going to get out of this world alive. Unless Jesus comes back first. All right? The important thing is to know what happens after that. I'm not, I don't take the attitude of, uh, I think it's a very uh, JW attitude that, nah, nothing here. Nothing here matters because it's all going to burn. It matters. It matters because we're here right now and God loves us. All these things matter. But they're not always going to matter. They're not always going to matter to me and they're not going to matter to you. They might always matter to somebody. When you die, one thing's going to matter. What did you do with Jesus? What decision did you make? What did you do with your life in the meantime? That's the only stuff that's going to last. It's what you did for him. The reason this world is such a mess, the Bible makes this clear, and I think it is one of the strengths. When you look at the apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, I think one of the most powerful arguments for the validity of Christianity is how well it describes me. How well it describes people in general and how well it accounts for the messed up situation that the world is in today. The Bible calls it sin. It tells us this. How can a loving God cause so much misery and destruction? He doesn't. He created the world perfectly. And when man invited sin into his own heart and then into the world, it began to break everything. We, should, we are seeing what we should expect to see. A world that is groaning under the weight of the sin of mankind. And there are only, there's only one person who ever had shoulders strong enough to bear all that weight. And that was Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You will be crushed by the weight of your sin. Your sin will kill you. My sin would kill me if somebody hadn't taken it off of me. Thank God the sin that would crush me was carried away and left nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago. The judgment that I deserved was poured out on Jesus. When people talk about, I just read something again recently, and, and, and I love reading articles about holiness, purification, how we've got to take these things seriously. We can't just say, well, I'm saved, so nothing matters. No, we pursue holiness, godliness. But when somebody says, he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle, and that's, we should be, We've got to be spotless. 
without sin? When I talk about spots and wrinkles, you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about clothes. You hear me? What are we, the bride of Christ, clothed with? Christ's righteousness. That's the gown. Whatever spot or wrinkle remains on me has been covered with the spotless, perfectly pressed and ironed gown of the righteousness of Christ. But you have to understand, always remember, God didn't say, it doesn't say God so loved the world that he chose to forget all about your sin. He gave his son to die in your place. It was the only way to purchase that righteousness for you, that forgiveness for you. He loved you that much. Can you appreciate that enough to say, God, you wouldn't have done that if if there were any other way? The only way into the life that God has for you here and now and eternity is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Will you make the decision today to accept that? To make a confession of faith. It says in Romans chapter 10, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will you simply confess today, Jesus is my Lord and I believe God raised him from the dead. If you're willing to say that, raise your hand. Say, yep, that's me. I desire to be a Christian today. Now, I mean, if you've never made this decision before, if you are not a Christian and you desire to be a Christian starting now, let me know. Right now, just wave your I'm not going to have you dance. I'm not going to have you sing. I'm just going to have you raise your hand, and I will pray for you from here. Anybody desire to become a Christian today? All right. We're at a precarious moment in history. I've, I've used that word several times today. We've got a job to do in an environment that is tough to do it in. And it ain't just about you being saved. Is there anybody in here? who's like, yeah, you know what? I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I made that confession. I've never doubted where I'm going in terms of heaven or hell, but I really need to recommit to what's important. I've gotten too distracted by my own uh, concerns. I've been, I've, been, I've been worried all year about money, so that's where all my concern has been. All my prayers have even been about money. Uh, I've been worried too much about the health of me or somebody close to me, so that's all I've prayed about. Uh, I've been too distracted with the, with the election or the election results that I've poured all of my energy and thoughts and prayers into that, and I want to simply turn to God and make sure I'm doing what he called me to do right here. Recommit, reconnect, whatever you want to call it, rededicate. If you're right, like, I want to get back on track with the life God has called me to, and I thank Jesus for this opportunity. If you want to recommit today, you can raise your hand too. See, one, two, praise the Lord. Three, hallelujah. It's good. Me too. Me too. I'm not going to have you come up here for this, and this seems like a weird thing to include in the altar call. We'll just do it all at once. If there's a sickness or a pain in your body that is preventing you from doing everything God has called you to do, that is part of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He didn't just, it couldn't be clearer. (laughs) Those stripes he bore had nothing to do with the forgiveness of your sin. That was his shed blood and his death. Those stripes that he bore on his back were for your healing. He purchased it for you. It belongs to you. Receive it by faith. Is there sickness or a pain in your body that you would like to experience manifest delivery from today? Raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you while I pray for these other things. You receive this by faith, okay? 
And finally, I'm going to pray over the offering. If you, uh, if you need an envelope for a cash offering, uh, raise your hand. Ushers will get you one. Wave it around because everybody's standing up. Somebody needs one up there. If you, uh, check, if you need to write a check, make it out to Living Word Family Church or simply LWFC. Most of you come in with your checks already made, and you can drop those off uh, after we uh, dismiss, which we'll do after a song, right? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, and then uh, we'll see you out in the lobby. Um, I'm going to pray for those who've decided to rededicate their lives. I'm going to pray for those who need healing in their body. You receive what you need to receive. If you desire to be born again, you desire to be saved, become a Christian, whatever it is, for the first time, and you didn't raise your hand, you still can do that. But I would appreciate if you let me know you did it before you leave today. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for your presence in this place, for everything you've spoken. Father, I pray if I've said anything out of your will, if I've said anything out of my flesh that wasn't your will, that you would sort that out. That you would cause everybody to forget it <laughs> or cause me to recognize it and repent. But Father, I believe we've at least heard from you today. I believe you've started some things in our midst that it's going to make us more effective, more pleasing to you. Uh, and I pray that these things happen quickly on an individual basis, on family basis, and, 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 and on a church-wide basis as you direct us and lead us into, into uh, the next phase of Living Word Family Church's ministry to the community and to the world. Father, I thank you for every person in here who desires to know you. If there's anybody in here in the sound of my voice who doesn't know you as Lord, even if they didn't raise their hand, Lord God, if they've acknowledged in their heart that they need salvation, I pray that you touch them now and hear their hearts cry that you are Lord, you are Savior, that, that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and that they would receive that salvation now and that they would soon publicly confess you. For those who are coming back, desire to pursue you with a renewed sense of commitment and vigor, I join them in saying, Lord, we, are, we, 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 uh, we turn to you. We don't want to be ignorant of anything that's going on around us, but help us to see everything from your perspective. Help us to never look over those who are close to us because we're looking, over, uh, looking at bigger problems. Thank you, Lord, that it's not either or, that we can pray about the big problems too, but help us to remember our boots on the ground, local community ministry, the household of faith. Help us to be ministers and agents of healing and wholeness and provision to one another. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Draw us back to you. I thank you, Lord, for the covenant of healing that you've made available to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, those stripes on his back. Thank you that you, when you saved us, you saved us from the whole curse of the law, poverty, sickness, and death. So I speak healing over those who need it today. I declare that your word is true, that the work is done, that every, every need, every physical need in this building is being met, that we'll see those manifestations, that they'll experience the healing. And thank you so much for the completed work of Jesus Christ that makes it available readily and always available to those who are in that healing covenant with you. Thank you for healing us in Jesus' name. And Father, now as always, we thank you for the opportunity to give into the work of your kingdom. Thank you for, we thank you that Living Word Family Church is good ground. And we thank you that Living Word Family Church is connected with so many excellent ministries that are preaching the word, saving souls, healing people across the state, across the country, and around the world. 
So we believe that as we give, that every penny is going to be productive, that souls will continue to be saved because of this offering here today. And Father, we also give expectantly, knowing that you've promised to bless us, to return back to us that portion which we've given, that same measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, Lord, so that we can give again. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.